chapter 4, 1 through 17. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of his firstborn of his flock of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do, dwell, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Hebrews 11.4 by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray. Father, we pray now that you would open our hearts and minds to hear and see your son, Jesus Christ, and our redemption in this story, that this story would become our own. And God, that we would be set free. We ask this in your strong name we pray. Amen. The last several years, my grandmother has been giving a different kind of gift to her grandchildren at Christmas. Rather than giving the usual just toys or clothing or money, my grandmother has been giving the gift of stories. Now, these stories might be coupled with a vase or a quilt or an old photograph, but every single gift comes with a story. And one of these gifts is hanging on the wall of my office. It's an old picture taken in the 1950s of a man and a bicycle. Now, being in the 1950s, it's in black and white. And though he's with a bicycle, he is dressed from head to toe in a suit. It looks a lot like Mr. Rogers. And on his bicycle is a basket, and on that basket is a sign that says, Christ died for your sins. The man's name was Mark Goodger, and he was known as the highway evangelist. He traveled from coast to coast, door to door, telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ all 
on a bicycle. And the story goes that he was in South Carolina and he pulled up to a large two-story house and he knocked on the door and as he knocked, he heard some scuffling, but no one was coming. So like any good, persistent uh, person, he continued to knock. And he knocked and he knocked and he knocked until finally a man angrily opened the door, took a pamphlet from him about the gospel, slammed it in his face, and went upstairs. A week later, Mark was praying and felt led by the Holy Spirit to go back to that house to check in on this man. And so this time he knocked again, except this time the man immediately opened the door. He greeted him with a smile and he invited him up to the attic. And in the attic, he showed him a rope hanging from the rafters, and at the end of that rope was a noose. And he told Mark that that day that he came to his door, his head was through that noose. But he was so persistent that he decided to at least open the door and see what this person wanted. And he read that pamphlet, that pamphlet about the gospel, and the story goes that right then and there he became a Christian. Now, the reason why my grandmother gave me that photograph and the reason why it hangs on my office wall is not simply to remind me of the ever-present need to share the gospel with all people. But it's also because of this. It's a family story. See, Mark Goodger is my great-great-uncle. We tell family stories in order to remind us of where we've been, where we've come from, and who we are and what we've called to be. Charles Taylor puts it this way. He says, our sense of where we are is crucially defined in part by a story of how we got there. In other words, the only way that we can truly understand who we are is if we understand where we've come from. And the only way to do that, to really ask ourselves, how did we get here? How did it all get like this? Is to go back into our family history and to tell the story over and over and over again. To remind one another the stories of our heritage. Well, this morning we're going to look at one of those stories. And like all good families, it's a story that perhaps we don't tell a lot because we're not very proud of it. We're going to be tempted this morning that as we tell this story, to listen to it at a distance. Partially because you've heard this story before. It's the story of Cain and Abel. And you're going to be tempted to listen to this story at a distance because, well, that's a great story. Like a story of literature or a story of fiction. But this is no fictional story. This is the true story of where we come from. This is our story, our family heritage. It's why the things are the way they are. And we're, this morning, we're going to see that this is our story in three ways. First, we're going to see that the story of Cain and Abel is our story and that it is our story of faith. Second, we're going to see that it is our story of sin. And lastly, we're going to see that it's the story of our city. And in these three ways, we're going to see that Cain and Abel, this story, as our story, both our heritage and the story of our hope. 
It's the first way that this is our story, is that it's the story of our faith. I invite you to look with me in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Genesis tells us that Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. And it tells us that Abel is a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In just these couple verses, we learn a lot. We learn that the very first generation after Adam and Eve began with Cain and Abel, two brothers. We know that Cain was the oldest, Abel was the youngest. Cain was a farmer, Abel was a shepherd. And that's important because of what happens next. Look with me at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit from the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock in their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now we must pay attention to what is going on here because it is massive. You have two brothers giving two different offerings, two different acts of worship. And the Lord has regard. In other words, he accepted Abel and his offering, yet Cain, he completely rejected. Why? Why? For centuries, theologians have been trying to answer that question. Why would God accept Abel and reject Cain? Some have speculated, well, perhaps it's because God has always required a blood offering. So, of course, Cain, the farmer, to offer fruit was not acceptable. But there is no such command given here, and this was well before Levitical law. Others have speculated, well, maybe it's because we are told that Abel gave the firstborn of the flock, and Cain gave out of abundance. Well, perhaps that's closer to the truth. Certainly it would be convicting for us this morning that we are called not to give just out of abundance, out of our surplus, out of our leftovers, but we are called to give first and foremost to the Lord. But this morning I want to offer a third explanation altogether. It's much more simple, but far more deep. Why did God accept Abel and yet reject Cain? The answer is faith. God saw right through their offerings, right into their hearts. And in the heart of Abel, he saw a heart that trusted God. But in the heart of Cain, he saw a man who only trusted in himself. God has always been interested much more in our hearts than he is in our external acts of sacrifice. Psalm 51 says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. So God looked into Abel's heart and he saw a broken and contrite spirit. Yet Cain was a hardened heart, hardened by sin, hardened by himself. This is why The writer of Hebrews says that it's by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. This is why the writer of Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and by it the people of old received their commendation. And by faith we receive our commendation as well. 
Where do you find yourself in the story of faith this morning? Do you trust only in yourself, like Cain? Or though, have you been given the gift of faith, like Abel? Because if there's anything that the story of Cain and Abel teaches us about ourselves this morning, it's this. That it is possible, it is entirely possible, to go through the emotions, to come to church, to sing all of the hymns, to read all of the liturgy, to do all of the right Christian things and say all of the right Christian words and yet have no genuine faith whatsoever. In 2009, the American Religious Identification Survey showed that the percentage of self-identifying Christians had fallen 10 percentage points from 86 to 76. And at the same time, those who identified themselves as being not religious whatsoever had risen from 8 to 15%. Now, you might hear that this morning, and like many people in our country think, what is happening? What is happening? And what should we do? But pastor and statistician Ed Stetzer sees it differently, and I agree with him. He writes, the church is not dying. It's just becoming more clearly defined. The change is coming by way of cultural Christians who no longer feel the societal pressure to be Christian. They feel comfortable freeing themselves from a label that was never true of them in the first place. It's possible, like Cain, to go through the motions, to do all of the right things, yet not have a shred of genuine faith in your heart. Like many of you, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church every Sunday. Yet my cultural Christianity could not withstand the weight of my doubt. And over time, my doubt won over. See, false faith is cultural, it's shallow, it's religion for religiosity's sake. It's ritualistic. Like Cain, it just brings an offering, trusting in itself. But true faith, genuine faith, is a work of God. It's a gift. It's countercultural. It's true religion for the sake of the gospel. It's heart-changing. That's why our assurance this morning from Ephesians 2 says that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. And it is the gift of God that no one can boast. So this morning, are you like Cain? Are you going through the motions, playing the part, yet deep down you trust in yourself? Or have you fully entrusted yourself to God alone for your salvation? Because the story of Cain and Abel is not just a story about our faith. It's also a story about our sin. Look with me at the very end of verse 5 in Genesis 4. We're told that when Cain was rejected, he became angry. Now I want you to think about that for a second. Because it reveals just what was actually going on deep in Cain's heart. Rejected by God, Cain, he's not broken He's not contrite. He's not moved to repentance. No, he becomes angry. Why? Because he thought his offering was worth something. And he deserved it. And so he, here he is, full of anger. And the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You see, Cain's problem was not that he lacked faith. It's that he was completely consumed with sin. And that's our problem too. This is our story, our story of sin. And God tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door. It is seeking to devour you, calling you to rebellion, just like the parents of Cain, Adam and Eve. To rebel against God as your king, as your creator, and to go your own way. You and I have been born into it just as much as Cain and Abel were. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and it wants to utterly destroy you. This is why John Owen says, you need to be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And not only does sin want to destroy you, but it wants to destroy all people. Cain is consumed with his anger. In verse 8, we see where Cain directs his anger. It's interesting. There Cain is. He's angry, yet where does he direct his anger? Not towards the Lord, but towards his own brother. You see, our sin not only affects us, but affects the people around us in destructive ways. Verse 8 says this, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And in just a few words, we're told of the very first act of violence in the Bible, the very first murder, brother against brother. In his anger, Cain killed his brother Abel. And in doing so, he struck down the very image of God that was bestowed in his brother. And this is what makes violence so heinous, so dark. Violence is the ultimate, the epitome of just how destructive our sin really is. And many skeptics look at this and say, well, look, the Bible is just a very violent book. What I want you to know this morning is that might be true, but it's not prescribing violence. It's just not shying away from it. It's describing in detail the reality of violence in our broken and sinful world. And we are surrounded by it. Gary Hogan, who is the president and CEO of International Justice Mission, just came out with a book where he argues that violence is the reason for poverty in our world. That violence and its existence in our own city and all over in every country is the greatest problem that our world faces. And this morning, I want you to know that that violence exists in you and in me as well. When's the last time that you had an angry thought about someone? That you gossiped behind their back? That you lied to their face? that you hid from them, that he had an evil thought about them. In those moments, just like Cain, you tore down the image of God in them. I remember when I was a boy, uh, just eight years old, I was very skinny, if you can imagine. I was not the uh, 
specimen of athleticism that you see before you today. <laughs> and being very skinny and lanky, I was made fun of a lot. Not very coordinated. I remember one day in my neighborhood, I was being made fun of, and I, it was, really got to me. And I welled up with anger. And I wanted so bad to get my neighbors back. And so I went in to our garage and found the first thing that I could find, a croquet mallet. And I gripped it in my hand, and I began to leave. And it didn't take very long for me to look down at my hands and realize just how silly it was. But for a moment, I wanted to hurt somebody. This violence is in us. It's in you and it's me and it's called sin and it causes us not only to sin against our God but to sin against one another. This is rebellion and this is sin. And so God comes to Cain and he says, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. It's a verdict. And the verdict is condemnation. Cain, you are guilty. Your brother's blood has condemned you. And the sentence, the sentence is this, verse 12. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain was to be banished, cut off. Cut off from the ground, cut off from community cut off from family, and cut off from the very presence of God forever. And in his sin and in his punishment, Cain could not bear it. And he said this, verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Brothers and sisters, the punishment is greater than we can bear as well. We cannot bear the punishment for our sin, to be cut off from eternity from God himself. We need someone to stand in the gap and to bear our punishment for us. And so lastly, this morning, the story of Cain and Abel is a story about our city. Look with me, verse 17. We're told that Cain knew his wife, that she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Did you know that the very first city in human history was founded by Cain? It was founded in sin. It was founded in violence. It was founded in rebellion. You see, Cain's punishment was to be a fugitive, to be a wanderer, to never settle down, to never put in roots to be cut off from community and people from God himself. And yet here Cain is, what is he doing? He's putting down roots. He's building a name for himself and for his family. He's establishing a city. Why? Because he is doing what you and I always do when our sin is exposed. We try to rescue ourselves. We try to get ourselves out of it. We try to bear the punishment on our own. You see, Cain... And establishing the city, that's exactly what he's doing. He is trying as best he can to bear the punishment for his sin on his own. And it did not go well. In just a few generations, we are told of one of his offspring, Lamech. And Lamech tells his wives, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. 
If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. In other words, generation after generation, sin begetting sin begetting sin, violence upon violence. You see, sin doesn't just affect us. Sin doesn't just affect the people around us. It affects our culture as well. And this was true of the very first city in human history, and it's true of our city today. We are surrounded by a very broken, very desperate, very needy city. Despite being the nation, statistically speaking, the nation's most Christian city, Dallas is a city that's plagued by inequality, separated deeply by race, by socioeconomic status. It's a city that is broken deeply by violence. Violent crime is on the rise here in Dallas, so much so that the chief of police in Dallas has just launched a new initiative, a new task force to push against violent crime in our city. And despite the appearance of wealth, Dallas is actually the poorest city in Texas by poverty rate. It's one of the poorest cities by poverty rate in the whole country. So much so that this is exactly what uh, Mayor Mike Rawlings has to say about Dallas. This is how he calls Dallas. He says Dallas is the poorest rich city in the United States. Poverty is concentrated in this city in deep pockets, and it's growing denser in these pockets. And so living in a city like ours, whatever city you live in, you can see why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 says we have no abiding city here. It's not lasting. But we are seeking a greater city that is to come. A city that's been promised in the book of Revelation where there's going to be no more pain, no more violence, no more poverty, no more inequality, no more crying, no more tears, where all things will be renewed. But until that day comes, though we do not abide, at least in this city, forever, We are called to abide in this city now, to seek the greater city right here and right now, to push against injustice and against poverty, to ask that the Lord would begin to push back the sin that's all around us, that we could begin to see something right here and right now of the greater city that is to come. And so as we end this morning, we have to ask, how does this story end? How does the story of Cain and Abel end for us? Writer of Hebrews says that through Abel's faith, though he died, he still speaks. In other words, though Abel has been dead for a long, long time, his voice still speaks. What is he telling you this morning? That faith, that faith is everything. It's a gift of God. That our sin is utterly destructive. That our city is in desperate need for revival. Flannery O'Connor says that there is something in us as storytellers and as story listeners that demands for a redemptive act. That when we hear stories like this, we want there to be resolution, some kind of redemption. So this morning, where is the redemption in Cain and Abel? Where is our hope? Our hope is found in Hebrews chapter 12. 
And that's where we're going to end this morning. So if you have a Bible, I want you to get it out. Or the Pew Bible in front of you. Because I want you to see this with your own eyes. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 22. The preacher says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the greater city that is to come. In verse 24, he says, You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and sprinkled with blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is he talking about? Well, if you and I are like Cain, just like Cain in our sin and in our destruction, Jesus Christ is like Abel. But Jesus Christ, his blood, as his blood cries out from the ground, it is not crying out for your condemnation. The blood of Jesus Christ is calling out, calling out for your commendation. No longer are we to be banished like Cain, as fugitives and wanderers cut off from God. But we have been called as sojourners with Christ, journeying to a greater city that is yet to come. Jesus Christ is the greater Abel. He is the greater Abel. He is the author and perfecter of genuine faith. He is his brother's keeper, yours and mine. He is the one who endured the violence of the cross and the one who bore the punishment that you and I could never bear. Jesus Christ, whose blood now speaks a better word than Abel. And that word in the Greek is tetelestai. It is finished. The blood of Abel condemned his murderer to be cut off from God forever. The blood of Jesus Christ has called his murderers to himself and has set them free and has invited them to be in the presence of God forever. This is our story. This is our heritage. And this is our hope. This is our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would see something new of our Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning, the greater Abel. Lord, may we find ourselves in this story and may we see that his blood now proclaims a better word over us and that it has set us free. Father, may we walk in that freedom this morning, we pray in the strong name of Christ. Amen.